My name is David Fries, and this is the Beezer Podcast, sponsored by Mitsubishi Electric. And our guest today is Chris Skidmore, OBE, MP. He's a British politician and author of popular history. He served as Minister of State for University Science, Research and Innovation from December 2018 to July 2019, and from September 2019 to February 20, during which he signed the UK's Net Zero Pledge into law. He also served as Interim Minister for Energy and Clean Growth. Most recently, he served as the Chair of the Independent Government Review on Net Zero, a position he has held since September 2022. Chris Skidmore was first elected in 2010 as a Conservative MP for Kingswood, South Gloucestershire, and became Vice Chairman of the Conservative Party for Policy in 2018. But in November 2022, he announced he would be standing down at the next general election. On the 16th of January 2023, Chris Skidmore published Mission Zero, the final report of the Net Zero Review, the 340-page report containing 129 recommendations on how to deliver the UK's Net Zero commitments and has been widely welcomed by energy and the climate sector. Uh, Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, And I'm joined today by Martin Fahey, uh, who will introduce himself. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, I'm Martin Fahey. I'm the Head of Sustainability for Mitsubishi Electric in the UK and Ireland. Uh, Yeah, thanks, David. I'm Chris Newman. I'm our Zero Carbon Design Manager, also from Mitsubishi Electric. Great. Chris, your report made 129 recommendations, uh, many of them very detailed uh, and not always in areas that people would be familiar with. How would you characterise the challenge facing the UK and and why is it important that we adopt the recommendations uh, set out in your report? So when it comes to net zero, now I was the minister who signed Net Zero into law, as you kindly mentioned, uh, coming up for four years ago. And if you'd asked me then, four years ago, that now 90% of the world's GDP, around 80% of all countries have a net zero target of some form in place, I simply wouldn't have believed you. We have seen a massive acceleration uh, towards decarbonisation across all sectors. And this is not just, obviously, governments talking to governments here. Overwhelmingly, uh, this is about looking at investment communities internationally who are only now willing to invest in projects that set out clear decarbonisation pathways. And so what I wanted to do when I was given the chance to to review net zero was not to look at how uh, we should somehow change the target. Yeah, that's it's in place now. It's it's not we're not going back on anyone who thinks that it's too far too fast. This is a net zero by 2050 has been agreed mm-hmm. you know, by all practically all governments. And the question now is how to make the most of that opportunity, that economic opportunity. And the Net Zero Review very much wanted to come up with a new narrative uh, for Net Zero, which was very much, even if there wasn't a climate crisis, which there clearly is, we should be doing Net Zero for the opportunities it presents the UK to be leaders in new forms of material, whether that's low carbon uh, building uh, standards and, and materials, or whether that's looking at how we can develop new forms of renewable energy. And it was quite expansive. Uh, as you said, I was standing down from, from Parliament, so I saw this as my last swan song, as it were, to really sort of set out where I think we can go with net zero to make the most of that opportunity. The review sets out an opportunity of about a trillion pounds worth of inward investment into the UK by 2030 if we create the right environment and the conditions for investors to invest. And I see you know, net zero not as an environmental project, but as an economic opportunity, the economic opportunity potentially of this decade, if not this century, for doing things you know, differently. And we've seen many transitions you know, in history, you know, whether it's the adoption of electricity, you could even argue the adoption of, of central heating and boilers uh, to replace yeah. uh, um, fireplace hearths, you know, have demonstrated that this can be done. And I wanted to demonstrate that yeah, we're not looking to somehow make the country sort of poorer or colder by taking forward net zero measures. Actually, it can make our country warmer uh, and richer. And so the, 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 the terms of reference that I was set for the report was to try to sort of say, how can we achieve net zero in a way that is going to benefit us economically? It's going to enhance 
uh, businesses, not going to sort of detract from their sort of profit margins. And, and, and what can we do to support those that will potentially struggle on that transition, being open and honest about, yeah, this isn't going to necessarily be an easy ride for everyone, but nevertheless, where can we, as the UK, be leaders internationally? Because I think if you look at a range of technologies, if you end up following, it always costs more. Mm-hmm. So again, you can learn the lessons from history, whether that's on uh, offshore wind or whether we actually just see most recently with electric vehicles. If you don't get the basics right, the sort of under the bonnet sort of nature around infrastructure, delivery, building out supply chains, building out skills chains, then in the end, you, if you follow, if you're leaving other countries to make the running, it's those countries that will see the economic advantage. And I want the UK to have a share of that. And that's what the review is very much about, is setting out 129 recommendations across all sectors, you know, whether that's looking at renewables, through to nuclear, through to circular economy, through to future climate leadership. What can we do to give ourselves a competitive edge in a market that is going to become the new economy of the future? This, this is a, a very, very long-term project uh, that requires a degree of political consensus. And I think you've worked very hard to try and get consensus on this to create that stable investment platform for people to have some certainty about that. Um, do, do you see that political consensus um, in, in the responses you've had to the report? So as part of the report, I, tried, I met with all political parties. I was really keen to say, even though I'm a Conservative MP, I'm an independent chair and that you know, making sure I listen to everyone was, is, is really important. If we don't have a whole of society approach to net zero, it will fail. And that means trying to ensure that we can build not necessarily total consensus. I think it's quite healthy that we have political parties giving different perspectives, raising ambition. You know, I'm a big believer in competition and if political parties are willing to, to demonstrate and show how they can go further, faster by you know, different sort of policy measures, that's really important. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have seen in recent years uh, sort of certain groups saying, oh, is net zero going too far, too fast? A bit of opposition uh, you know, appearing. I think that's very vanishingly small. And one of the things I've always felt as a politician is how do you ensure that you can use the media as an opportunity to talk about the priorities you want to set out, but not allowing... Yeah, the media to come up with false narratives sometimes, which are sort of allow those with the loudest voices to sort of say, oh, you know, and, yeah. and yeah, that's a democracy. We, you know, it's, it's right that we have that, but equally, you've got to be able to lean in and you know, work with the processes that we have to try to sort of make the case. And I think with net zero, you're always going to have to make the case. You can never rest on your laurels thinking this is what we have, yeah, just because we've got political agreement that it's guaranteed for the future. And given it's net zero by 2050, 28 years. You know, it's both a short time in business, but it's a long time in politics and trying to make sure you can maintain that certainty. In the report, we talk about the four C's, certainty, consistency, sort of clarity and continuity, which is why it's sort of creating these long-term missions because business and industry need certainty uh, for long-term investment decisions uh, and need certainty from politicians. And trying to demonstrate that actually, regardless of who's in government, you know, net zero will continue is absolutely vital for me. Chris, I think you had a few questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so much to talk about, uh, as you, you touched on there, Chris. I mean, when you when you signed that document, obviously back in 2019, you know, maybe you said at the time you didn't realise the the kind of impact, the long term impact it would have, and it, it genuinely has had like a real big impact. You wouldn't believe the number of presentations we give to uh, to customers and clients where we, we've got that picture, that famous picture of you signing the declaration, and we're still out explaining to people exactly what that means and. You talking there before about net zero touching so many different areas from transport to, you know, to nuclear power to uh, electricity to everything. Um, is that you trying to condense all of that into one message is really difficult, and we talk about it within our business as a bit like having a destination but without having a map. And then we know where we need to be, we know where we need to, when we need to be there. But obviously that allows the freedom, uh, as you said about consensus for for everyone to kind of decide how we're going to get there and for there to be variation on how we're going to get there. But equally, that makes the, the, it really challenging to then actually get everybody on board because everybody's got slightly different trajectories that there aren't. Everyone's on a different stage of that trajectory and certain things are more important to some people than others. And that's where I think the whole 
the policy side becomes quite difficult because you're trying to um, set policy to get people on the right track, but there's obviously still a slight argument maybe over what the right track is or exactly the best way to achieve that. Uh, and it, is, it has been really interesting to see. I mean, myself, Martin's been in the industry for longer than I have, but I've been in it for 20 years and I've, I've never seen so much change, you know, historically building regulations, um, you know, general guidance, the way th buildings were built, the way things were done was all fairly straightforward. It was, you know, tried and tested and it was uh, well understood. But in the last few years, there's been fundamental changes to all of that really. And, and um, that's where I think obviously a lot of the BISA members are still trying to get their head around what good looks like, what all those changes mean, how they deliver those changes. So um, it's been really, really useful to have the document that you've um, you published to be able to pin some of those things too but even so it's still really difficult to get everyone to understand all of it. Yeah I think the sort of complexity particularly for buildings you know, and I've seen an organogram of, of what's involved and I don't relish uh, anyone who has to sort of get to grips uh, with that but you know we can learn the lessons from net zero in terms of having a core message and some simplicity and in the report, you know, we make a number of recommendations to try to drive forward sort of consolidation uh, you know, around you know, what were the key messages here. I guess the challenge for us is we've got what we've got, so we have to work with the existing structures while at the same time reforming them. So yeah, one classic uh, example is the Energy Performance Certificate, which was never really designed as a, a sort of policy framework to judge carbon emissions, uh, decarbonisation, embodied carbon. Yet it's being used as such, yeah. uh, and obviously there seems to be a broad political consensus that it should change, and the government is willing to sort of look at moving on that. But at the same time, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it is what we've got, so you have to use it. And I think mm -hmm. trying to understand also, yeah, the future home standard, which we've sort of called for to be sort of put in place by twenty twenty five, put all the legislation in place for that. Yeah, is, is you know that's the immediate sort of you know, situation we find ourselves. But then we should be planning in the long term. So there's that tension between the here and now and getting stuff done, and at the same time making sure we do it in the most efficient way going forwards. Which is why we called for a sort of net zero sort of home standard, where you've got for new homes. I personally don't think there's any excuse why new homes shouldn't have solar panels by default on them. Uh, we, one of the challenges thrown down to me, actually by the net zero scrutiny group, which was actually sort of sceptical at net zero, was like. It's unacceptable that we've had, you know, 1.3 million homes built. They're going to have to be retrofitted over the next sort of, you know, by 2050. Mm. Uh, those 1.3 million homes, and and I hold my hands up, you know, that's government policy decisions have allowed that to to happen. Mm. But yeah, you know, we really need to be in a place now that every new home is effectively a, a net zero home, uh, and that when it comes to obviously looking at sort of retrofit, and that's obviously a really really difficult challenge, particularly for certain types of homes and. In the net zero review, we, we, we sort of create this um, net zero distribution analysis tool, which I'm hoping the departments will now use, which create 36 different typologies of homes. You know, they're really difficult ones like single skin sort of mm. you know, brick buildings. Mm. What are the additional supports going to be needed for those you know, in future? But also, try, you know, I, I'm a big believer in trying to set dates that then you can have confidence that you're going to reach. Don't over promise and under deliver. At the same time as saying, look, if we're going to look at how we can decarbonise homes, a key part of that is home heating, looking at boilers and saying, when are we not going to have any new new boilers, obviously not going to new homes, but then also for existing homes that have gas boilers, where there will be no new boilers uh, effectively for sale. Uh, and that's obviously a, a, a difficult challenge. And we, the government has recommitted now to 2035 on the back mm. of the net zero review. I suggested 2033 because it sort of gave that sort of sense of a decade challenge. Yeah. Uh, we had thought about 2030, but the industry said it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just like the supply chains wouldn't have been able to be built out in time. But I'm delighted that the government has now sort of come out very firmly and said, you know, 2035. And then a way you've got all these other sort of complex rules and regulations, but at least if you, have, if you said that, the, the point you made about the, the map, the, the destination, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really good one, that we now have that destination fixed in the same way we've got for electric vehicles. And if we can ensure that that is maintained, as I think the government's response to the Net Zero Review has demonstrated, then people can begin to work towards that change date. 
That very clearly worked in, in a couple of areas. So where they introduced con gas condensing boilers, that changed the market, it completely changed the market and, and drove that. So it does work. I think our members would look at some of these things and say there's a difference between what you say you're going to do and what actually happens. So, um, for example, you have brand building regulations. We can't even build a house to the current building regulations because, and there's a complete lack of enforcement. I and mean, ultimately where this ends up is Grenfell, where you see that. And I would argue that in the, in the, the Building Safety Act, and this is a very closely linked because it's almost impossible to build a building badly. If it performs for energy and carbon, it's probably a safe building too. Do you see the link between those two elements, so the Building Safety Act and the Net Zero Agenda? Yeah, so I think for, for myself, and it comes back to trying to get people to, to buy into Net Zero, that Net Zero you know, isn't just an environmental uh, policy framework. It has a number of co-benefits as well. You know, when it comes to existing buildings, I often say, you know, we're the poor man in Europe when you look at energy efficiency and the amount of heat lost over a sort of five-hour uh, period. Uh, and just sort of ensuring that we can insulate buildings, make them more energy efficient, will improve the quality of lives of either those tenants or the owners that live in those buildings. And when it comes to new buildings also, those those standards and safety standards, you know, a net zero home will be you know, a safe home for the future. And it's, it's something that, I guess, the, the challenge for me with Mission Zero, the independent review of net zero, I had three months to do it, so I covered everything. I'm now keen, actually, to sort of double down on some of the areas of, of focus. So obviously looking at buildings was a key mission in Mission Zero. I've now set up something called the Mission Zero Coalition, and we're going to create a, a buildings Mission Zero network, where I'm trying to sort of bring the sector together to explore, I think, in further detail, under the skin of what was made, sort of, recommendations in the Net Zero Review. Yeah, the devil is in the detail with all yeah, this Yeah, exactly. And mm. I think, sort of, there's obviously a, you know, a number of measures being sort of pushed forwards by the Green Buildings sort of Council around looking at sort of what are Net Zero Home standards for the future. So I'm really keen now, sort of, phase two of the work I'm taking forwards is to create this Buildings Mission Zero Network where if any of your members are interested in getting involved, I can provide sort of further details. Mm. But this is to really look at you know, the, the, the policy landscape at the moment, where are those synergies that can potentially actually strengthen uh, the opportunity uh, for organisations and companies at, at the same time as you know, recognising there as challenges. Everybody starts off with the, um, with the idea that they're going to have a, you know, an exemplar building, everything's going to be perfect, and about halfway through they recognise they can't afford that, and suddenly all that good work uh, gets lost. For our industry, it's anything above the ceiling that I can't see, lose it, change it, whatever. And we end up then in a, a sort of a race to the bottom, build and design, and and then nobody checks the outcomes at the end. And that's such an important thing is, did you actually deliver the building that you said you would deliver? Because it has massive, massive impact. 90% of us spend 90% of our time in a building. So it's really important that it works. That's a good example where the EPC you mentioned before, Chris, is uh, although it's not necessarily the best method of trying to decide whether a building is a good building or not a good building, it is a method and it's a fairly straightforward method of understanding. I think a lot of the work has actually been done. So a great example, there was the 2019 consultation on improving the minimum energy efficiency standard. And I think there's a lot of really good data in that that supported the idea of, of setting a better minimum standard. But obviously we're kind of three years on from that. And then feeding into what uh, David was saying, if, if a lot of it is based on a desire to want to get to a better building rather than being a mandatory requirement to get to a better building, that's where those nice to have things get taken out because often of, of cost. Mm. So there's a balancing act obviously between raising a minimum standard and setting a desirable target. I suppose the, the, the real question is where do you see the balance between making the minimum standard much more difficult to achieve um, and setting the, you know, the target? Because uh, one of the things we talk about a lot is rather than having targets, maybe limits are better rather than actually saying to people, no, no, you shouldn't try to achieve X or Y in order for good to be deemed as good, you should actually get to X or Y. 
and then that starts to become, I don't know, more tangible um, and less able to be wriggling out of it, less able for, you know, for cost. I mean, we know that cost implications come into every project, but, you know, when there are certain red lines that you can't go below, they, they almost become taken out of that conversation. So we've got mm. to get there. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's worth thinking around how to create sort of new campaigns within the building sector. So, for instance, you know, we think of homes as homes or houses as houses. Actually, you could begin to sort of split this up and look at both, obviously, if it's talking about new homes, where new homes are built. So, obviously, there's large challenges in the past around you know, whether you should build on brownfield versus greenfield versus greenbelt. Actually, I think that there's a challenge around you know, trying to get community consent on greenfield homes. Actually, if you can demonstrate they are... Uh, net zero homes mm -hmm. that they are environmentally friendly then you sort of begin to win the argument for why we need houses in the first place I'm really interested in exploring you know, moving you mentioned outcome you know, is mm. the outcome simply what just focusing like? yeah. and does it, is it simply focusing on decarbonisation which is very intangible to people to understand yeah. sort of you know, but actually the big win I think if we can get it right is actually we're now beginning to see zero bill homes being created actually when people move into homes uh an octopus energy have been sort of focusing on this i think as well saying actually a net zero home potentially means that you don't pay uh, you know, any electricity costs and and that, one of the things i was interested is like this idea around gas-free homes because also the challenge and we know we need better strategic direction from the government on this you know is to what extent we will see an ending of the gas grid and you know, we don't need the gas grid being sort of installed mm -hmm. in new homes and if you have the sort of sense of where you can have a renewals only home to what extent people buy the home knowing that they don't have to pay any bills mm. yeah that's in itself becomes a really sort of you know mm. nice way of thinking what's the, the outcome that we want to be able to sell to people that this is actually you know something where it's going to make them warmer and richer as i say um but then at the same time you know focusing on the standards i my constituency down in kings there was something called the hannam hall development that was part of like the sort of zero and carbon emissions homestand then it ran out of money but actually people who buy those homes you know they rarely come on the market now because the quality of the build and the actual this quality of life that people have living in those homes is is, is incredible um but you, i think we if, unless we have the mandate we're not necessarily because partly as you know so much in building is around the labor market supply costs materials costs but primarily if the building out sort of like we see the learning curve coming down in offshore wind. We see it coming down in solar. Yeah. We could see it potentially coming down in homes as well if we can make the commitment that everyone has to potentially you know, ascribe to this. So I do, I, I do believe in the mandate as a means to deliver lower cost. And I think you're right. I mean, I, um, I, I was one of a small team, but a, a, a team all the same that uh, attended the, the COP events in Glasgow. Um, we're manufacturing um, some of our products, some of these key products in, in Scotland, so in the, in the UK. And I, I, I left there very buoyed, very uh, you know, optimistic. And, and I remember um, speaking at the time in, in debriefing and pieces that we did afterwards, which is it was very clear. I mean, the UK government extended its um, um, ambition in its nationally declared um, contribution. Um, to be a genuinely world-leading figure when they brought in shipping and aviation and that sort of thing. But it was very clear to me and clear to others in the conversations that I was having that it was then going to be um, uh, industry, businesses that are going to have to go away and make this change happen. And I characterised it in two things, which was like innovation and investment. And we announced our investment in there and we've announced further innovations since, you know, off the back of the this optimism and the opportunity that's there. And we've we've gone out, haven't we, since Chris, and talked to hundreds and hundreds of of, of, of members like Inbiza and 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 independents alike about the opportunity that is there. So this this huge opportunity. Um, I think that the the interesting thing when you're talking about um, domestic and then non-domestic mm. in in a domestic environment it's all about the outcome as you say to make it very simple and very easy to understand very mm. beneficial for the occupant i think from a, a non-domestic from a business point of view 
it is a subtly different message because as you say it's about you know being able to grow about being able to have more certainty for the environment that that business is operating in um, even for things like the buildings that a business occupies in order to to run its business they need to align with the business's strategy the business's outcome I think there's definitely a key difference between the way that net zero needs to almost be framed from a domestic and a non-domestic point of view because I do see them as quite different markets as a business as Mitsubishi Electric we have two separate teams within our business one that looks at the residential side and, and one that looks at the commercial side because you know a lot of the players are different the building regulations are different the planning regulations are different the outcomes are different yeah. what good looks like is quite different in those two arenas um, so I think that's something that was really interesting to read in the document as well about where there is the same thing across but where there are differences and with you saying before about the uh, the coalition that you want to try and move forward with the different subgroups I think you might start to see quite different views in the detail that you were mentioning that come out for uh, for domestic and for non-domestic. Yeah and I think the review itself we tried to push forward obviously on sort of commercial property that we can potentially be more ambitious that there is a sort of greater sense of more of a stick rather than a carrot maybe. Yeah and I think also a sense of uh, commercial um, opportunities for companies to willing to be flagship pioneers there's a sort of sense now that when it comes to international reputation Mm -hmm. trying to sort of demonstrate uh that you are first movers Mm -hmm. um and i think that's sort of a you obviously a very different sort of you know you've got a push and pull i guess and sort of the those that how do you create the environment that those that want to go further faster can do so aren't held back by some of the barriers that you've sort of mentioned Mm -hmm. around the sort of plethora of existing regulations that creates this sort of like complicated web of how to navigate that but then also you know when it comes to domestic knowing that that's where we are falling behind uh and that will come but it's it's, it's that sort of yeah it's very much I, i i agree with your analysis that sort of sense by which but what you want in a just transition is not, I don't want net zero to be seen as all the sort of big companies getting on with it, going to COP and saying, look, we're great, we've got our own house in order. Mm. It's And then we see the widening gap between the sort of, yeah, those are on the FTSE or elsewhere, sort of pulling ahead. And then actually on the ground, how do we ensure that sort of communities can see the, the benefit of it? And I think that's, for me, it's also a, a challenge for making sure that we continue to innovate on policy as well as obviously when it comes to looking at sort of the individual um, solutions yeah. yeah well i think say for instance a classic one is, is is on insulation and offsetting obviously offsetting shouldn't happen unless absolutely is the last thing you should mm. do but if you look for instance at the moment and there's a whole you know, piece of work that's happening now around the sort of voluntary sort of carbon markets and you know, we reflect that in part six of the re- of the mm. review of the pillar six, which is net zero in the future. But COP twenty eight is going to be quite interesting on the voluntary carbon market. But I'm, you know, why, for instance, can we not ensure that companies that you know have, have worked to reduce their scope two, scope three emissions, if they're unable to f- go further faster on what they're doing at the moment, why can't they necessarily offset by providing the investment into insulation, say, for instance, in local authority housing estates close yeah. by them? Yeah, yeah. At the moment, all the offsetting has to go into building forests in India or something. So mm. there are ways in which I think that we can you know, try to take those two different streams and actually how can we sort of connect them? Join them because bit, I sort yeah. of think that there is, as I said, there's this wall of inward investment about to come if we want it. It'll go elsewhere and go to Germany, go to, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, we can talk about that later. It's obviously a yes. huge sort of like challenge and opportunity. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you're making sure that we have this just transition that we take everyone with us. It's like, how can we take that mechanism of the, the enthusiasm that's at the top and ensure that it sort of percolates down, mm-hmm. uh, trickle down economics for net zero, I guess, just to make sure that sort of uh, yeah. Uh, effectively we're not leaving communities behind because I do worry that certain people in certain communities will say well what's net zero doing for me and and that's the, that's the challenge I think we've yeah. got to three I mean, we've had different responses to um, you know community level testing with hydrogen and things that, that you know that's created some you know strong feelings in those uh, where people certainly f- where people feel they're being done to, I suppose, yes. as opposed to that's another way of putting your fair transition point, most definitely. 
I mean, we, we found very early on in our heat pump journey uh, in the UK market that it was the people, the, 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 the owners, operators, or, you know, just users of, because a lot of the early uh, people who uh, were exposed to using a heat pump early on uh, in, in this process were often in local authority or housing association properties. So, you know, there, could, there was a certain sense early on then that, oh, that we're being done to now with this, this box. So we realised that very early on, and I'm sure others did as well, that that, that engagement with the user was vital, is vital in the transition. So yeah, we've, just picking up. We've seen way. a big swing though. I mean, when we first started selling commercial heat pumps in the UK market, you know, back in 2008, 2009, um, it was very much, it was about compliance. This is another mm. way that you can comply with building regulations. This is another way that you can, uh, you know, reduce the carbon emission of your building, reduce the energy consumption of your building. It was all very much a, based around another way that you can tick the boxes that you have to tick and a, another solution. Um, whereas as you said, Martin, from a domestic point of view, it was very much, here's a better way that you can save right, money on yeah. your bills. Here's a way that you can contribute, you know, towards, um, you know, a better society for your children, for the country overall. So again, Before those, the phrase net zero was even exactly, being exactly, used. Yeah. Yeah. But the, that is quite a middle class argument that they can mm. afford to do that by and well, large. No, so I was saying, David, it, uh, in those early days, you, were, you either felt, Broadly into two camps. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. You were either, um, you know, of arguably of that middle class, and, and you were a self builder, and you were educating yourself as to what you wanted in your forever home, or you were being exposed to it because you were a local authority or a housing association tenant, because they were doing that on your behalf, because they were they either felt it helped you. There was some investment in that as an asset as well. Of course, you know that's there that's their future as well so yeah there was a polarization about who was early on experiencing these technologies where we've seen a real shift now is phrases like heat pumps net zero that sort of thing is being talked about on breakfast television when you switch it on or whatever so that's that's been a huge change in the 15 years that uh, chris and i have been talking about these solutions and, and that is very true um Almost every committee or group I sit on, we focus immediately upon new build. We don't, it's always about new build because that's easy to do. And it's a kind of a, it's a turning off the tap on new build. So you're not filling the swamp full of more buildings that don't comply. And turning off the tap, I think is relatively easy. The real difficulty comes with the building stock we have at the moment. Um, and there's also a focus on energy generation rather than energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is the really cheap and easy prize, but it involves inconvenience to people. If we're talking about the domestic mm -hmm. to start off, it's relatively easy in the commercial world. But how do you force that change on people uh, without the use of stamp duty, a penalty, a stick in other words, either stamp duty or council tax or something of that area? How are we going to tackle this massive, massive challenge of improving the energy efficiency of our properties? So I think when it comes to looking at our existing home stock, which obviously 80% of all homes are going to be there, like they already in 2015. So it is the challenge. And we have that 600,000 heat pumps target by 2028, which is one of, the, I think, the most sort of challenging of all the sort of targets there. You know, if you look at sort of places like France, they've got at least 10, 15 years on us in terms of actually building out. And Is that not a big part of the um, the gas and electricity smart yeah. gap? Because in France, that gap is not yeah. in the same way that we have in the UK, and therefore the transition to that technology is much more palatable. Yes, and I think one of the, the great things, that the, the, the best thing for me in the government response to Net Zero Review was agreeing to looking at a rebalancing of the gas and electricity yes, year, price. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we need to be able to create net zero markets if net zero is going to effectively succeed and we're not having things done to people. Uh, and I think sort of when it comes to you know, looking at the future of home heating, I personally feel that it's hydrogen doesn't have a role really when it comes to, uh, it will be heat pumps. Uh, and the sooner we recognize that, sort of the sooner we'll be able to sort of get on with building out the supply chains, the factories, all these sort of things that we need to then bring down the costs of the heat pumps. You know, we seem to be now in a, in a price competitive market where 
you know, go back three years or something and a heat pump was 15K and now it's mm -hmm. potentially coming up to 3K or under 3K depending on the type of pump. Uh, we've got to be able to look at some of the regulations to be able to, again, reduce the costs. And I did another piece of work for the Treasury, which was published at the same time as the government's response. Very few people picked up on it, but one of the key things is obviously the one metre rule on, on heat pumps, which obviously was the, designed... Uh, permitted development. Yeah, the permitted yeah, yeah. development, which is three metres in Wales and 30 metres in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, trying to just crack this nut mm. would mean that sort of you, know, you could actually sort of get on with... And, and you know, again, reducing the cost, the more we can make, the more we can build out sort of the, the people who are able to implement, to fit these things, we're going to reduce the costs. But then I also would say when it comes to you know, looking at how we can do this... Trying to create the carrots, the R sticks, is, is probably a sort of the, the way I think we need to go to start with. Because I, 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 I genuinely believe of one, if you get the transition right, you don't even notice it happening un underneath your nose. You know, no one bemoaned the loss of their DVD collection to Netflix. <laughs> or, you know, look at these flat screen TVs and things, computers I've got in front of me here in my office. It just happened because the utility value and the cost curve yeah. came down where they both met in a, in a new price point. And if the price point comes down you know, when it comes to heat pumps and other energy efficiency technologies, it will happen. It will, we will deliver it. And obviously the challenge is identifying the homes where potentially that price point won't happen. So that's what the, the Net Zero Review recognises. There's about 4 million house, houses, you know, whether those single skin buildings, whether they're particular sort of local authority housing estates where people aren't going to turn a profit there won't be a sort of yeah recovery where you, you make that investment and they, they will need additional government support but you, you break down the sectors and start focusing i think on these sub challenges so again we talk about homes but you know the private rental market the sort of you know, the home those who own their own homes those who'll be selling their own homes if effectively you just said actually when you put your home up for sale if you effectively took forward a certain number of measures that got it below a certain rating uh, and then maybe you didn't have to pay a certain level of stamp duty. That actually, maybe you can turn it into a benefit. Then actually, you'll get the, you know, a, a stamp duty holiday for doing all these national these improvements before you put your home up for sale. That would begin to shift each year. You know, sort of between sort of five and ten percent suddenly starts mm -hmm. to you know, and, and then you start. And for me, it's about creating the industry because if you can do that, it guarantees certainty amongst so, the industry yeah. that this yeah. is this happening, and that's when the costs come down as well. So, yeah, over the years and years that we've been talking about this in the UK, because I mean, this isn't new. I mean, other markets we know are, are, are further ahead. Um, but it was just picking up on one of your points when we we speak to members of parliament, Scottish members of parliament. To me, they this, it distills into three things for them, which is, are they noisy? Which is your permitted development point, which is very easy to dispel because we normally say, well, that, that this particular model has been running while we've been talking. Oh, has it? Okay, so the noise the noise question is is put to bed very quickly. Cost comes up, obviously, you know, will more, you know, of these drive that down? And then that links into the third point, which is always the skills point, which is, have we got the skills to do it? Well, we don't. <laughs> that is, we, we actually don't have the skills at the moment to deliver buildings to building regulation standards, so that's... That's a problem at the start, and that isn't going to be solved very quickly. Um, so it will be a combination of innovation, technology, and mm -hmm. creating the atmosphere yeah. that will allow that. And the same as yeah. when it comes to looking at existing properties, is the existing workforce, yeah. not the new workforce. No. Everyone's going to talk about apprenticeships and the sort of yes. up-and-coming generations, and that's great. But yeah, for 2050 and even for 20, you know, well, it, in 2030, we're yeah. going to be halfway there. It's, yeah, this, around the corner. So. Yeah, this challenge around reskilling and upskilling an existing workforce must be where we've got to sort of place our attention. Obviously, as a former education minister, as higher education minister, uh, and someone I, I set up a lifelong uh, learning uh, commission that sort of has tried to focus on this. You know, we, we've really got to be able to create the modular-based qualifications and bite-sized learning opportunities for people to train on the job as well. Uh, it's interesting to see which companies are doing obviously that in-house, but to what extent, mm. you know, when it comes to looking at the energy efficiency market, obviously, it's sort of quite broken up and a number of smaller companies aren't going to necessarily be able to provide those training opportunities. So where do we have these retrofit hubs potentially providing the support regionally? To what extent we can look at sort of this, this skills being sort of a devolved domain now? 
you know, where regional mayors can potentially sort of lean into net zero within their skills well, the, budget. The, trail, the trailblazer yes. city idea, yeah. I think, was brilliant. You know, we picked up on on this on some of the um, industry bits and bobs that we were doing, right, some sure, of the press releases did, yeah. and stuff we were talking about. Because the idea of if if net zero is a little bit it's a little bit of a big thing to get your head around in all of the different facets and different areas. And then when you look at an entire country, it becomes even more complex because you've got totally different things going on in London than you have in Newcastle and you have in Liverpool. Um, when you start talking about the trailblazer city and going, actually, we know that from um, contractors' point of view, everybody tries to use local labour, which is you know preferable, obviously, and the right thing to do. And then if you start to pick a trailblazer city where you say, right, we're going to back Manchester, we're going to back Newcastle, whatever city it is, Bristol, whoever it happens to be, all of a sudden you can say, right, well, we're going to focus more training in that region. You know, we're going to focus more projects in that region. We're going to actually try and do certain things and actually do a little bit of the learning so we, if we can see what goes well in that particular region and then start to multiply it out across the country. I think that, that attitude and that idea that was in the, the uh, Mission Zero report, that was a really good idea. And I'm, I'm hoping that the government take that forward and start to actually you know, implement that in certain areas. It yeah. does show the importance of cross-government cross departments working together. Um, I have to say, I've just come back from the US. I, we talk a great deal with our colleagues in Europe exactly the same issues there. Uh, you can see uh, in the US, they need 35,000 skilled pipe fitters, and they're kind of scratching their heads with $340 billion projects as they reshore manufacturing. Um, and they're scratching their heads in the same way that we are, and it will inevitably be a mixture of innovation and technology and using what labor you've got in a slightly different way than we do now. Um, you mentioned earlier about the Inflation Reduction Act. You said there's an opportunity there. I think most of people are looking at that as a threat mm -hmm. uh, here at the moment. What, what do you think the opportunity is? So, I mean, I've, I'll be off uh, to the US next week, actually. I'll be doing a, a you know, roundtable over there with Vicinity Energy, you know, one of the sort of largest uh, district heat uh, suppliers for the US. Um, in my own town is in Bristol. Uh, where it was close to where I'm an MP, you know, Amoresco, the Boston company, are investing $450 million into the Bristol uh, City Leap and their sort of local authority, again, district heating network. Yeah, I think US, sometimes we sort of focus on the Inflation Reduction Act thinking, oh, it's such a large amount of money, $369 billion sort of dollars worth of, to be invested in climate sort of technologies. Uh, and obviously it provides that sort of certainty to the 1st of January 2033 that this is things I'm committed to. Um, but you, you, the point you make is that they haven't got the labour force, not necessarily... Yeah, so there is an opportunity, I think, for sort of collaboration where we can both... You know, work as the UK and the US together. I'd like to see a new green special relationship, if I'm honest with you, that we don't necessarily turn around and see the sort of inflation reduction acts as something that is anti-collaboration. You know, I don't think it is. I think sort of when you look at some of the US companies, they want to be able to actually trade in all our expertise. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes in the UK, we do ourselves down quite a bit. You know, we are leaders. Uh, when I did, a, I did a round table at Greentown Labs in Boston about a, in March, and one of the, the core messages from all the US companies who were there was saying, it's great we've got this money, but what you've got in the UK is a regulatory environment that we'd love to have because at the moment mm. sort of Boston is building out different standards to New York when it comes mm. to looking at sort of building efficiency regulations. And they're so far behind us when it comes to this. They're looking to the UK leadership on buildings in particular. Uh, and I think that we can play a role in that. And you know, it's not necessarily just about sort of getting a slice of the money. It's about if, if the UK can come up with net zero solutions that can be globally applied then that is something that for the UK workforce, that we can take that and it, we can you know, be working country by country by country. All countries can then look to us uh, for how to do it well. We can help write that map that we exactly. talked about yeah. before. Yeah. We've got the destination. We can start to do a little bit of work on, on actually showing yeah. how you, how you mean, get there. You, you mentioned Bristol earlier. We, we spent some time down there recently. And I, and I don't know, there's something in the, I don't know what it is, there's something in the water in, in that area in, around that Bristol on this, this can-do attitude to we can um, do things differently and, and, and do them at the right pace. We spoke with um, um, the two ladies behind um, the Future Leap 
um, in Bristol and then the next day we went out um, because we'd done some um, heat pump work with um, with Nick Hounsfield in the in the wave project on the edge of in uh, uh, the edge of Bristol and there was yeah there was a, a, a real sort of can-do attitude about about the place and about uh, drive and creating this community of sort of change if you like if that doesn't sound too corny but it was really interesting that's very true local communities mm. can drive things you, you just going briefly back to the US one of the areas I think uh, I see a significant lead is health and safety in within construction we are I think we're miles ahead in terms of that and, and actually that requires you to properly plan and work out what you're going to do so it, it's a kind of a, if you get that right you have the opportunity to do things mm. But one of the uh, odd things we found during the pandemic and the lockdown where construction stayed open was that productivity went up because, you know, who knew that planning was a good idea? Instead of the hurry-scurry rush, you sit down and plan it first. Uh, and I think there's a lesson there around designing the thing before you start to build it because we talk about productivity, which is, in a, you know, if you're short of people, they need to be more productive. And so all of these elements are, are linked by you know, a thing where you and, and you and governments of all colours, I think, have dealt with projects. They've done one thing and think it's in a box. It isn't. If you're looking at many of these things, the apprenticeship levy, how that's used, would free up the ability for people to share bits across the piece. So it is a. It it's always, it's never black and white, is it? It's always multicoloured. No, but you're obviously right. That sort of how we can get away from sort of thinking about. Yeah, whether it's in government or whether it's you know within industry about sort of moving from one project to another, how we create that programmatic approach is is, is critical for you know the net zero review recommendations. I want to be able to see, you know where's our equivalent of the sort of KFW uh, energy efficiency program in Germany, a guaranteed sort of ten year programmatic structure that industry recognises that you know this is stable, it's funded, mm -hmm. and you know in this, this country you know, we have to obviously dance around the spending review periods and sort of not be necessarily sure whether the money's going to be there. And we've obviously had you know these sort of projects like Eco, which obviously now are going to become the Great British Insulation yeah. things, which is interesting. I hope yeah. I just hope it's now going to be given a sort of adequate investment and a, a, a commitment to actually being a program, because if you can do that. It will bring down the costs, yeah. and that's the sort of that's the key challenge. Certainty, is, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainty. We, we had a discussion before we came in about um, reducing carbon leakage, and we all recognised that we actually probably didn't understand what reducing carbon leakage was and meant in in your report. Could you just sort of outline what you understand the carbon leakage problem is and and what you propose to help that? Yeah, so I think the, the key challenge, obviously, with carbon leakage is if we set ourselves so many sort of stringent tests around emissions and you know, we have the emissions trading uh, scheme, which obviously the UK sort of led on, which is going to become a lot more stringent. You know, even the, both in Europe and in the UK, they've set themselves now, I think it's sort of 2030, and this is obviously going to basically companies get credits for yeah, some of these companies, obviously, whether they're cement, uh, concrete, steel, yeah, they energy intensives, they can't necessarily do much about sometimes their emissions reduction until the technology and the innovation mm -hmm. catches up. They are where they are. And we've always recognized that. But, you know, we will going to gradually see a ratcheting uh, of actually making sure that these organizations do address some of their emissions. Um, but the challenge is obviously if we just allow companies to then go and relocate to China or India uh, to continue to produce the steel or the sort of concrete cement without having to deal with these emissions requirements, we're just pushing our problem down further into sort of yeah. global south. Um, and the challenge with that is obviously that those products are then cheaper. Uh, potentially because they haven't had to deal with the cost of decarbonisation and those can then be sort of resold back into the UK market. The The challenge now is obviously how do we think about decarbonisation also in terms of quality? So thinking about how we produce you know, high quality projects and recognise embodied carbon is also a sign of, yeah. of quality. And I think we now, you know, we, we are in a place where, you know, products are beginning to, we, we, the, the challenge is do we create mandatory product standards where we say this is the embodied carbon in a product and this is sort of something we look at. 
the EU is obviously led on a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is to basically say that, you know, that when it comes to any products that are going to be sold back into the EU, if they do have high product you know, carbon, uh, sort of like embodied carbon, yeah. there's going to be additional tax placed on it to make sure mm -hmm. to make sure it levels up. The challenge for the UK is if the EU do this anyway, then we will end up still getting you know a, a, a glut of of uh, high uh, carbon low quality, whether it's steel or other buildings materials sort of flooding our markets and that then potentially puts obviously UK companies out of business. That was a really good example actually because um, obviously we're always looking for the government to try and move forward faster because we want to get on the journey basically and, and as you say get all the benefits that net zero is going to generate. But I know the carbon buildings bill that obviously went in front of the House of Commons um, a little while ago um, the the government's position on that was actually at the moment it's probably not right to go forward with that because it might have some unforeseen consequences. I think it was Deanna Davison that gave the, the government's position on it, saying that we are going to do a review, we are going to consult on it, but what we don't want to do is legislate and then effectively create a situation where it, you, we just outsource our problem elsewhere yeah. and we can actually create things in the market that we don't want to create. So I kind of totally agreed with that attitude of that is an example where moving faster probably isn't a good idea. But it's trying to balance it, as you say, yes. because if we don't move further faster, we don't get anywhere. But ultimately, all of the stuff, the buildings, the concrete, the, the bricks, the steel, it's got to come from somewhere. And if we start counting things on carbon, then you know, where, where do you get to a point where is it better to buy it from a, pl a place where the, it's got a lower carbon footprint coming from it, or is it actually better to buy it from a place where we, we're in control of that, of that carbon footprint? And that's where the, the, I think the European um, policy comes into play, because at least you're counting it. And I think visibility and transparency is the biggest important thing at the moment, to actually know where, yeah. where the figures are coming from, what, what is the carbon associated with that product, that material. And this is the other thing, is that it, it, could, it could move so fast now. Mm. Uh, and that's the challenge, is that if, if we could be in a place where our you know, manufacturing base is leading on creating the sort of low embodied carbon materials and standards, then we've got potentially a global market. And this is happening elsewhere. We often think of it in terms of UK legislation terms, but yeah, whether it's other countries are now thinking very similarly about whether they're going to sexually end up not allowing these products to be sold or be sort of you know, potentially putting a tax on them. And if, if we can get in first, uh, and that was why it was so frustrating with this sort of um, coal mine in Cumbria, the sort of coking plant, is that the UK still don't necessarily even want the coking coal because they want to be focusing on hydrogen and uh, yeah, where that's where we should be using hydrogen yes, and on electric arcs for sort of remelting re steel and reusing steel. Is that sort of, you know, that's where the investment should be coming, not sort of looking backwards. Uh, because if we can push ourselves on this, then ultimately, you know, being a world leader, you know, and taking the technology to a global market puts us in a far better place uh, for the future. I always think, you know, we, we sometimes we're at risk of thinking, you know, we, it, net zero is a tightrope. You know, on the one hand, if you go, you know, we, we've got to continue to meet our climate obligations and, and make sure we don't, we deliver on our targets that we've set ourselves. Because if we don't, people will say, well, you failed to do this. What yeah. can we trust you about anything else? So there's a huge question about trust. But if you, if you, if we go too far and basically upend the economy or sort of like do damage, then you'll, end up causing more harm because people will lose support for the measures that ultimately can benefit them. It's just creating the environment in a way that's economically sustainable. If it was easy, I suppose we'd have done yeah. it already by now. Every government would have would have had it nailed and, and done it, but it's obviously not very easy, is it? But I think the key thing is is that I think there is no turning back. That's the other thing. I think now businesses, yeah, you know, like Mitsubishi, you know, aren't going back on this and there's no way that anyone can sort of claim that somehow we're not going to look to do this. Uh, it, it is about that sort of future sustainability. I and mean, there will be bumps in the road, but it is recognising sort of that long-term trajectory and sort of planning that we do live in a global marketplace. We've got to help out our you know, sort of neighbours and work with them you know, for the future. Um, but also coming up with common standards, global standards, is where I think the UK can place itself as a leader and then help everyone as a result. That, that's a really great place to kind of nearly end, if I may, I'm conscious of time. Um, a final question. I think we said that, I said at the beginning rather rudely, that none of our members would have read your report. 
but they still have this thing. It's a nebulous thing in the background. Sarah, they're they're contractors. They're installers. They you know the people that focus on the doing side of stuff, and they're the deliverers of net zero. I guess. Where should they start with this massive agenda? Um, yeah, 100, 129 recommendations. Where would they start on their journey to to getting to net zero? It's a really good question. Uh, often when I say it's a good question, it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> uh, I think the, the, the starting point, I think, sort of must come from saying, well, what do you want out of your company? You know, the, the, the challenge is, is that in life, you've got to keep moving to stand still. Uh, and I would say for any company sort of looking at setting itself a business plan for the next five years, sort of next 10 years, no one is saying, you know, it's got to be done now. It's, this is like, you know, you're not sort of forcing yourself to sort of like, but, but at the same time to take a step back and say, where is the economic opportunity for my company to fill a gap in the market? You know, where potentially could I set out? And I think there is a, an enthusiasm and a hunger now for looking at companies that are able to demonstrate and lean into saying we are a sustainable company, we are doing things. And and I think the, the challenge is for those that aren't willing to make the change, that they fall behind. And that's my, I, I guess, the sort of challenge I'd say to, to companies is to think strategically. I know it's really difficult sometimes when you're thinking, you know, week by week on what sort of projects are coming up. But, you know, when it comes to sort of, you know, giving that sense of like, what does your company stand for? What are its values? That people are beginning to think more about this uh, for the future. And that potentially creates new markets for you, new opportunities. Uh, and trying to think through how you can, at this moment, I think, you know, uh, take a section of a market that is, is, is willing for the taking. The you know, regulations will follow, but for those that think about this now, they're going to be the market leaders and the companies that are still in business in 10 years' time. Well, there's, there's two sides to that coin, isn't there? And weirdly, myself and Martin sat across the table here, quite a, a microcosm of that, because you've got to worry about your company's carbon emissions and how you make your company a, a, a business that's on its way to becoming a net zero business. But then you've also got to think about you know, as you said, you're a contracting company that you're delivering solutions for your clients. It's then how you help mm. the client that you're working for to then deliver their commitment and their portion towards the, the country getting to net zero. And, you know, I think sometimes that message of getting to net zero is actually which bits are you helping other people to do and which bits are you doing in your own business? Yeah. And I think I, that, I, that's an I often talk about us having a sphere of influence and everybody has a sphere of influence in that regard. Um, and and that's what we're doing. We're using that and and reaching out into that into the the corners of those supply chains. And when I'm challenged with that question, which I often am, David, you know, my maybe somewhat oversimplistic reply is, you've just got to start measuring everything at the moment. You know, and literally everything, everything you're doing, everything you're purchasing, why you're doing it, and try and understand that. And that would be a great place to start from. And as I say, maybe a simplification, but you've, we've really got to start get a grip of that one. Yeah, because I think once you start measuring, then you're yeah. able. The long term work is around working with your supply chain partners right. to actually have that element of trust that you mm -hmm. know what you're buying from or you know, what you know, you're you're working with is also delivering. Um, because if you can get to that place, there's an element of trust that you can be a sort of trusted sort of you know, company and partner exactly. for the future. But I would say, you know, that opposite that opportunity on the transition. If you look at like sort of companies like Orsted, you know, oil and gas company, they moved to become a renewable wind energy company and never looked back. And there is those opportunities to not look back if you reposition your company as companies that are focusing on the future. Um, and you know, there are obviously going to always be challenges, and that's as much as sort of you know, politicians' job to help simplify the legislative landscape for the future, which I hope that we will do. Um, but at the same time, uh, recognizing that sort of companies that see where the future is going you know, are going to be the ones that get ahead. And you're not standing in the next election, so what, what, what does the future hold for you beyond what October next year? Yeah, so my constituency, which is lies between Bristol and Bath, is being abolished. So I actually don't have anywhere to stand. Um, so I thought this was potentially, yeah, is where I was born and grew up. So I had nowhere to really sort of move to to stand. I've got a young family, so those sort of personal reasons meant that I sort of felt um, actually when it comes to sort of 
being a politician, you've got to focus on lots of different things all the time, whether it's you know, crime, health, you know, sort of education. And, and actually now I've decided I just want to focus on one thing, which is to look at sort of, you know, delivery of net zero. Uh, and I hope that I can probably have as much impact on that outside of House of Commons as actually being you know, a legislator. I sort of feel now that we have the tools to be able to get on with the job. Uh, and it's trying to sort of you know, advocate and work with companies and organisations uh, to try and make that reality happen. So you're going to be holding us to account for many years to come over this. Yeah, I think yeah. You know, the, the thing about net zero is that yeah, you know, it's it's a project that we've all got to sort of commit to. And I sort of feel, having been the minister that signed it into law, I've got to see it through now to, to the end. There's no escape now. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, uh, on behalf of the Bees of Members and our sponsors Mitsubishi, Chris Gibmore, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.